My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Thankful to have uh, Derry and Debbie with us. Uh, come on up, folks. Derry and Debbie uh, launched out in ministry about 23 years ago. In fact, I was a youth pastor at Sunrise when Derry and Debbie showed up, and uh, we were one of those early churches that began supporting them, and they've supported them throughout the years. And actually, a lot of fun projects. We were Derry and I were reminiscing this morning of kind of just some cool ways God's worked. And uh, having had the privilege of showing up over there a couple times in Kampala and out in Kasese at the school, and uh, it's, it was great to see you guys in action and what God has done there. So we want to say thank you for your faithfulness because that's a long journey. That's a lot of years, and you sacrificed a lot by way of family and friendships in order to go be dedicated to that. So so we're excited. Now, Derry's going to preach and share, but in a few minutes, but they're going to just talk about that. So give them a hand just for their faithfulness. Thank you, James. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay. When I first came to the church, I, I, I brought a rope and, and uh, talked about how William Carey, when he was contemplating going down to India, he said to, the, to his supporting church, he said, if you hold the end of the rope, I'll go down into that dark continent in India, but you must hold, hold the end of the rope for me here. And, uh, and so I want to thank you for holding the end of the rope for 23 years. And on, on this rope, a lot of things are attached, so it gets quite heavy. There, there was my family, and uh, you helped... Uh, by uh, supporting us so I didn't have to worry about the cares and needs of my children and clothing them and feeding them and housing them and I was able to give myself to the uh, Deb and I were able to give ourselves to the Christians and to the people in Uganda on your behalf and thank you so much for holding the rope when we when we first left we had to leave two of our five children here in college and God sustained us through your prayers. And thank you also for holding the rope when in our first term there was rebels around us and there was gunfire and shooting and some nights we were, had to take our kids in the hall and uh, sitting on a mattress and uh, God sustained us and God protected us. Thank you for holding the rope. And thank you for holding the rope when our son died in 2004. Uh, with such grief, I didn't feel like going back to the field, but God sustained us through your prayers and through your support. Thank you so much. Um, well, when you are a missionary, you, you are given a lot of things to do. And one of the things I worked with was Western Uganda Baptist Theological College. You saw the small school there with the very big name. And uh, it 
became heavy on the rope. There were lots of needs there. There was clean water that needed to happen at the school, and, and you guys helped with that. There, there, we had elephants in our garden, uh, and, and we had to build a fence to try to keep the elephants out. And, and you helped with that. So there was just these plethora of projects, not only people to, not only people to train, for ministry, but, but trying to also meet the needs of the school so that uh, um, they would be able to continue training pastors long after we were gone. And so the rope got quite heavy, and I bet you thought that by the time it was all over, we, you, there was an elephant at the end of the rope, and you're absolutely right, there was. And, and now that we are retired, uh, God has allowed us to put some of this rope down and here we go now we have a string (laughs) and we hope that maybe you could help us hold a string as we plan to go back to Uganda once or twice a year to reestablish to encourage uh, the relationships that we have there and to continue in bringing the gospel there thank you so much thank you Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really privileged to be able to share with you this morning. And um, James gave me Ecclesiastes chapter 11, 1 through 6. And there are a lot of incredible things happening in this, in this short passage of verses. Um, how many people here have made plans in their lives? Mm. Uh, uh, we all have, I know, I know. Uh, um, how, I have made plans all the way through my life. And, and now that I'm, I'm 68 years old, I can say with absolute certainty, with 100% accuracy, that every plan I made never turned out like I thought it would. You know? And it, it's nice to have that perspective. And it's a good thing that it didn't turn out like I thought it would. Um, so when we make plans, we make them without so much information that, uh, sometimes you wonder, why did I even make that plan? You know, uh, uh, well, in Ecclesiastes, we're faced with the same sort of problem. Solomon pushes the limits of human knowledge. He says, what, what can be known? What cannot be known? You know, uh, um, and so in the first chapter, or excuse me, in chapter 11, the first verse, verse 1 and 2, it says, send your grain across the sea and in time Profits will flow back to you. Divide your investment among many places, for you do not know what risk might lie ahead. Isn't that true? I mean, we just don't know. There is so much stuff we don't know. And, and, and so, you know, this is good advice in that environment. Good advice in the environment of not knowing. Yeah, right. Send your grain across the sea and time profits will flow to you. Of course, if you don't risk, you won't gain. That's just, that's just truth. If you're a farmer and you have a bucket of seed, you've got to risk putting that seed in the ground. And you may lose the whole bucket. Nothing may come from it. 
And you may woefully say to yourself in two months' time, well, I had a bucket of seed, and now I've got nothing. So, so you know, risk without risk, you, there is no gain. And he also gives us another section of advice. But divide your investments in many places, for you do not know what risk may be ahead. Well, of course you don't know. And it makes sense to divide our assets among different investments. Uh, Thank you, Dave Ramsey. (laughs) But why is this true? Well, it's true because we don't know the future. Our human knowledge is so limited. We can collect information, but even in the collection of information... Uh, It's not complete. There's not enough of it to make a sure prediction. Get used to it. Life is like that. This is the universe we humans inhabit. We always make plans with limited knowledge. Hence, there is no guarantee that those plans will be carried out. This should teach us natural humility. But there's another problem with not knowing. And that problem is we can overwork an issue. We can think about it and take too long in gathering information and data. And we work so hard at the plan that it keeps us from the doing. So Solomon warns us in the next two verses. Verse 11, 3, and 4. When clouds are heavy, the rain comes down. Whether a tree falls to the north or the south, it stays where it falls. A farmer who waits for perfect weather never plants. And if he watches every cloud, they never harvest. Well, weather prediction, oh my. We live in the perfect purgatory for weather predictors. You can look at a 10-day forecast, and I can guarantee you it's going to be wrong. You would do just as good as if you went outside and looked at the clouds and said, clouds, heavy with rain, rain falls. Yeah. That's a truism. Right. Natural events happen. And those natural events, sometimes we can understand some of the processes of them, but it's another thing to control the process. And, and so we can understand the process, but we're still unable to control it. So we don't have the ability to predict, even off of natural processes. And so if you wait for perfect conditions, what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing happens. The only thing that happens is you wait. And, you know, it's, I, I've known people who, who think they're going to do something after they get out of high school. And then they say they're going to do it when they get out of college. But then they've got to get married. And, and then they have to raise their kids. And then their kids have to go through college. And, and, and then they're waiting for their kids to get married. Then they're going to do what they said they were going to do. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, they're retired. And they're too tired to do what they said they were going to do to do. They're still waiting for perfect conditions. Let's look at the last two verses in this section. 
Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a teeny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Plant your seed in the morning, keep busy all afternoon. You don't know if profit will come from one activity or another or maybe both. So to sum this up, what Solomon is saying here is something very profound. Something that we need to focus on. And in some way it helps all the other pieces fall together. And it's found in that phrase, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. You know, Solomon doesn't say, you cannot understand the God who created all things. Like a past tense, right? He's saying it present tense. He's saying, you cannot understand the activity of God right now who does all things right now type of thing, okay? Who continually does all things. Now, if you think of God as as being a watchmaker and he winds up the universe and steps aside and go takes a vacation for a very, very long time, you know, and, and so that means that the products of life are, are a combination of, of uh, predetermined existence and, and uh, chance matter time events that we participate in and try to influence somehow with our limited intellect. And if that's the case, then the universe is closed. It's not open because God's gone. But that's not what Solomon's talking about. He's talking about an open universe. He's talking about a universe that God constantly sticks his finger in. And when he sticks his finger in, he messes with things. He changes things. And, and Solomon says, you can't understand that. But he, he says, it's happening It's what's going on. It's called the idea of an open heaven. And we're kind of funny. We like closed things. We like like to think that our lives are private, you know? When I go home and shut the door, I shut the world out. They don't know what I'm saying to my wife. Uh, The neighbors don't know really what I think about them. I just go, yeah, hi. You know? (laughs) And so, you know, what is said in Derry's house stays in Derry's house. You know? But that's not the way the universe really works. We're in an open universe. And there is no such thing as privacy. And I'm not here with a conspiracy theory. I'm just here to tell you the absolute truth. There is no such thing about privacy. Not on your phone, not on the internet. Uh, That I don't know anything about. But I do know there is no such thing as privacy with God. God knows every thought. God knows every word. God sees every action you have ever done. And it doesn't matter where you've done it. He knows about it. He knows even the things you haven't said. That you wished you said. Man, he knows all the arguments you've won with your wife in your own mind. God knows them all. There is no privacy. 
We deceive ourselves to think we live in a closed universe. The top's been taken off. And God has the right to put his finger in. It's his universe after all. If you want to complain about it, first give him back his air, would you? (laughs) And then try to complain. No, we live in a universe that's open. That God can reorganize and does at times. And so how are we to act in that universe full of mystery? Full of not knowing. Well, Solomon's advice is very good advice. He says, plant your seed in the morning, keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another or both. And what he's saying here is this. He's saying that faithfulness wins the day. Being faithful. Faithful wins the day. It's not the best plan that wins. It's not the smartest person that wins. It's faithfulness that wins. So be faithful. Plant your seed. Don't just sit down and say, well, I planted my seed. There's nothing else to do. No, get doing something else. Who knows where good will come from. It may come from that, it may come from this, or it may come from both things. Just be faithful. Do what you're supposed to do. Success comes through faithfulness. Faithfulness that is driven by faith and trust in God who works in all things. I want to take up this idea of an open heaven for a moment that Solomon has introduced to us when he says you can't understand the activity of God who does all things. The idea of an open heaven can kind of creep us out sometimes, especially especially when uh, uh, we know we've done wrong. Are we're contemplating doing wrong. And, and, and it should. It should creep us out. That's maybe even the Holy Spirit helping us to understand that, that we need to be running to the Savior's side instead of planning for doing wrong. This idea is also found in the New Testament. And, and we know that God is the one who can see all things and do all things and know all things. But what kind of God is he? Is he, is he vindictive? Is he a bean counter God? What kind of God is he? Well, to know that, we have to go to a greater than Solomon to find that out. And that's Christ himself. Christ is the fullness of God in flesh revealed. And he tells us what God is like in Matthew 26. Or Matthew 6, 24 through 33. 
And I'm going to start at the 24th verse because that verse is almost like a restatement of the first command. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? So let's read it. No man can serve two masters. For you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. I'd love to park on this for some time, but, but I just want to point out that Jesus says it's impossible. If you think you can do it, your argument is not with some religious nut like me. It's with God himself, Jesus Christ. You're going to have to take it up with him. He says it's absolutely impossible. It cannot be done. You cannot have two masters. We cannot serve God and money. And yet, how much of the world's teaching is saying, well, you know, you need a little of this and a little of that, and you need a little of everything, and and it'll all work out in the end, thank you very much. No, Jesus says it can't be done. You can't serve God in money. And why is that? Because in the service of money, money becomes our God. You know, money is the measurement of success, power, and importance. The money of this world becomes safety for us. It becomes the focus and the treasure of our future needs and wants. And money for a Christian can't be any of those things. Because money for a Christian... No, it can't be any of those things because God is to be those things for us. He himself is our protector. He is our provider. He is our hope. He is our treasure. And when we make things that, we're just making idols. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Verse 25, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you, more, aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God so and if God cares so wonderfully, I love that phrase. Think about it. God cares so wonderfully. What kind of God is this? The God who cares. And he cares wonderfully. For the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. What kind of father? Is the father in heaven? He's a father who's aware. He's a father who knows. 
So Jesus turns and says, seek the kingdom of God and above all else live righteously and he will give you everything you need. You know, we're to be like children before our God. You know, a, a child doesn't worry about how his father is uh, uh, going to drive the car when the father says, hey, come, we're going to go on a road trip. We're going to see grandma. You know, a, a four-year-old pops in the car in the back seat and bounces up and down on it. And, and he's not concerned about the route they're going to take about the traffic on the road. He's not concerned about uh, will dad get lost or not. He's not concerned about how much gas is in the tank or, or if there's oil in the engine. And he has no clue how brakes work. And he sits back in the back seat of the car with the silly smile saying, we're going to grandma's, we're going to grandma's. And in his head he's saying, I'm going to get candy. I'm going to get candy. Right? Yeah. Right, right. And that's how we're to be. It seems we're faced with a choice. Either we trust our abilities, our strength, our knowledge, our wisdom, and as a result, we bear the full weight of worry, fear, frustration, failure, And eventually the damnation brought about by pride and the deceitfulness of riches. Or we trust God who is working, who does care, and who provides, and who knows our needs. Either we seek the kingdom of things and stuff and decay and rot and self-aggrandizement and importance, which leads ultimately to disappointment. Or we seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and live in a relationship of trust with him. For the heavens are open. God himself knows all our needs, even before we ask them. He is a loving father who wonderfully cares for his creation Jesus leaves us no third option. We cannot have a divided love, a divided hope, a divided master. We either put our faith in God's ability and his nature and in his goodness, or we put our faith in our ability, our goodness, to care for ourselves. I know this sounds stark, and it is. And that is who Jesus is. He says things that beat us in our head and boot us in our pants. I can almost hear uh, your heads and hearts saying, oh, come on, does this really work? Uh, Come on. Did you ever live in the real world? And I've asked myself that question over and over again, uh, faced with certain circumstances. God, does this really work? I find the problem is not the promise that Jesus makes, but the problem is my unwillingness to trust the promise that Jesus makes. And like Jesus said to his disciples, so he often says to me, why do you have so little faith? 
and I'm like the child in the, I should be like the child in the back of the seat of the car and just say, I trust you. I trust you. When I was 29, I was working in New Zealand and uh, with wife and family, we were loaned to another organization from an organization I was working for in New Zealand to manage a rehab unit in, in Auckland. And the rehab unit had 12 people in it and was struggling and dying and they couldn't find a manager. And I was asked to figure out what was going wrong with this rehab unit. So I moved my wife and my children into the dwelling place where these people lived. And they were 12 very troubled and very problemed people. We had a a lady who could go catatonic at a drop of a hat. In fact, she seemed to do it more when you asked her to vacuum. (laughs) And I mean, she would be the statue against the wall for hours. We had another lady who could could, uh, stand in the corner of a room and she would howl, just cry. It was like like listening to uh, someone lost in the tombs, the story Jesus told. And, And it would echo through the home for an hour to an hour and a half. And then she'd compose herself and do what she needed to do. Had a guy that was so angry, uh, Someone else teased him. He picked up an axe and chased him across the lawn with the axe. So uh, it was an interesting place to bring a wife and two children. I got into the office. The office was in a huge disarray. Uh, Ledgers were there, but they made no sense. And uh, maybe it was an American trying to figure out British bookkeeping. I didn't know. It just made absolutely no sense to me. And I, I, the only thing I could figure out is at the end what we had left in accounts. And it wasn't anything. We didn't have enough money to pay the next month's electric bill. I sat down and I said, God, this is too big for me. I can't do this. I can't manage 12 people, pastor them, shepherd them, be on call 24 hours a day to see that they're cared for and to encourage them to start to walk with you by faith. I I can't do that and and worry about all the repairs that need to be done on this building and and feeding all these people and clothing them and transporting them. How how are we going to get all this stuff done? We have nothing in the bank account. I don't know. I can't care for the people and raise money at the same time. It's just not going to happen. So I'm going to make a bargain with you. I'll run this place for two months. And if we're in debt at the end of two months, I'll go to the trust board and I'll say, sell the place to cover the debts. We can't make ends meet. And I promise I'll focus on the people. I'll promise I'll be a shepherd to them. I'll be available for them when they get up in the morning at three. I'll sit them down and talk with them. I'll be your hands and feet to them. But I can't carry the burden of the physical needs as well. Three days later, I got a knock on the door. And there was this short little lady. Uh, She was older than I was. and, And she said, hello, I'm an executive secretary. 
I thought, well, that's a little unusual. Okay, right? Hello, I'm, I'm Derry. I'm, I'm working here at this rehab center. Uh, how can I help you? Well, the issue is I wonder if I can help you. Well, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'm, I've been in charge of an executive, and so I, I know a lot about things, you know, and how to organize. And, and I said, well, I have an office that's pretty disorganized. Do you think you could come and whip it into shape? She says, well, let me see. So she came in there, looked at the books, sat down, organized stuff. And by the end of the week, I had uh, end-of-month reports that I could understand and knew what to do with. And she stayed with us for the whole year that we were there. Three days a week, she just gave her time. Two days after she knocked on the door, another knock on the door came. I went and answered, and there was a man in a suit, and he said, hello, I'm a lawyer. I thought, ooh, that's not good. I thought, what do the guys do now? <laughs> you know, probably getting served for the, to pick some neighbor's fruit or something, you know. <laughs> and I, he said, I said, and? <laughs> and he said, well, uh, I, I, I've studied... Uh, a nonprofit law, and I've been working in uh, a commercial law, and I just, I want to practice nonprofit law. And I'm willing to volunteer my time to you so I can just do some nonprofit law. I enjoy it so much. I said, Really? I says, Well, what does a nonprofit lawyer do? Well, we, we help write grants and things like that. And I said, So what are grants? I tell you, I was ignorant. I really didn't know. I was being honest. And, and he said, well, grants are, are usually given by companies who think they've done some social damage by selling booze and beer to everyone, you know. And so they feel a little guilty about it, and so they want to kind of clean up the mess they've left behind them. And so you're working in that mess that they've left behind them. And so if you tell them some of your needs, they'll, they'll help you with some of your needs so you can clean up, clean up the mess. I said, you're kidding you mean a beer company's going to help me clean up my mess here? You know? And he said, well, if you want to put it that way, yes. So we met that week. And he said, what do you need? Well, I, I need a roof repaired on this building. I have two hot water cylinders that are not working. I have plumbing that fails to function. Oh. I have a car out that I, I can use to help transport people around, but it doesn't start half the time, and it's on its last lag. So I need a van. Oh, he said, no problem. Within three months, we had more money than we knew what to do with. We had a car. We had the van. We had, had the roof on the house. We had new hot water cylinders. And let me tell you, it wasn't because I was clever and it wasn't because I was smart. And it wasn't because I knew all the facts. It wasn't because I did such a great plan. It was because the heaven was open. Amen. And God put his finger in. And I was just doing what I could do faithfully. That's it. God's good. He's a good God. 
Jesus says. He's a good father. He knows our needs. He knows what we have. We need to stop worrying about it. We need to spend more time committing ourselves to him and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness and trusting him that all these things will be added to us. I want to share, oh, I'm out of time. It happens. The clock, the clock belays me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I don't have the amount of faith to take the sun and make it go backwards yet. <laughs> That's going to take a while, I'm afraid. I did want to share just one other thing. And, and forgive me, James. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I want to share a story that isn't so grand and glorious. So you can see also how God cares. Because he cares when, in our minds, things don't work out and we don't know why. He still cares. Uh, uh, We were home on home assignment. I was speaking at a church. After the church, the uh, mission committee invited us out for dinner. And uh, so we were at a restaurant on a large table with about 20 people. And and Deb and I and the pastoral staff and the mission committee. And and we were going to talk about Uganda with them. And uh, uh, I got a phone call. And I looked at it. It was from uh, a man whose house we were staying in. And uh, I thought, well, I better get this. I don't know what's going on. So I excused myself from the meeting, walked out where I could hear because the restaurant was too noisy to actually hear on the phone. And uh, I, I, I said, hey, what's happening, Norm? He says, Derry, I've got some bad news for you. I says, oh, okay, what happened? He says, uh, your son died. We had a 21-year-old son. And he was killed. And I said, what? He said, I don't know. I don't know any of the incidences. I only know some people have been trying to reach you and they haven't been able to and they called me. And I, I don't know. I, I, I was just told that to tell you. Call this church secretary at home church. So I dialed the phone and called. And, and, and while I'm waiting for the call to get picked up, I'm saying, God, this has got to be a crazy joke. This has got to be a crazy joke. Got a hold of the church secretary, and the church secretary said, Derry, you got to come home and bury your son. He died. Oh, my. The world just stopped. Turned my eyes to heaven. I I just, it's like a fish out of water. What do you say? Only God, help me. Help me. And then I thought about my wife, still in the restaurant, and, and our 13-year-old, our, no, our, yeah, 13-year-old daughter by then. And, and, and I thought, how am I going to tell them? And how is this going to work out? And God, I don't know anything. I've never buried a child before. How do I do this? I have no knowledge of it. How do I handle this? How do I be a, a father and a husband under these circumstances? How, God? How? And God spoke in a still small voice and said, 
I'm still good, Derry. And you know, that was the truest thing ever spoken. He was still good. His goodness did not guard us from the pain. His goodness did not deliver us from the sorrow. And his goodness did not tell us the reasons of our son's death. But his goodness kept us. His goodness became the anchor of our soul in which we could trust in. His goodness was our hope and our joy in the midst of sorrow. And instead of blame and and all the things that happen when people lose a child, we could, Deb and I could support one another and encourage one another and cry with one another and pray with one another because of God's goodness. The heavens are open. God is constantly sticking his finger in it. How are we to live? Faithfully. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Thank you for letting me share.